So some conversations that I've had, I, I heard a podcast, I had a conversation with someone and um, <clears throat> and in the course of the conversation, I asked him three questions. I said, so do you believe that there are free wills in God? And he said, yes. He's a professor at seminary. Uh, he said, yes. But are there three consciousnesses in God? And he said, yes. And then I said, would you go as far as to say that there are three quiddities, three mm. things? Yeah. And he said, yes. Yeah. And he's since repented of that and, and uh, doesn't hold that to that anymore, but that was his position at that time. And that just opened a whole new door to me in understanding what was, what was going on. Because if, if you hold your EFS, you really have to believe in those things. You really do have to believe in those three things. There are those three things in God. Three consciousnesses, three wills, three quiddities. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine, an Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Well, it's a joy for me to be with Matthew Barrett and to be talking about Matthew, your, your new book, which is uh, coming out soon and which I've read and um, enjoyed so much. Yeah. I really I love the flow of your writing and, and uh, your illustrations that you launch chapters with get the attention. It's, it's something that's it's great uh, to, to give to lay people as well. Not, it's not just for, for eggheads like me and you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, t- today we're, we're talking about your eighth chapter, which is on uh, the eternal subordination of the Son, a current theme. Yeah. Of, in the evangelical world. Do you want to just define uh, what we mean by ERS? And yeah. ERS? Yeah, well, um, like you said, uh, it, it's it's really good to be with you, Liam. Um, you know, we, we sort of bury our heads in all kinds of, you know, books past and present, uh, a lot of academic books. But yeah, I mean, what, what you just said is right. I, I really thought, hey, if we're, I mean, you're a pastor. Uh, you're you're working there on the front lines. I thought if we're going to help the church, and uh, in my experience, I'm sure this has been your experience. Uh, so many churchgoers are just they they'll come to you or and just they're confused. They don't know what to think or what to believe, um, and they're just perplexed. And so I I really did uh, wonder. Hey, is it is it possible in a single chapter? <laughs> because <laughs> uh, the whole book's not on this, but in a single chapter to give a, a, a critique of EFS uh, in a way that um, didn't lose the, you know, the, uh, the quality of, the, you know, the more academic issues, but nonetheless communicated in a way that could, could be clear and understandable for pastors, especially, but also students and, and, you know, churchgoers like uh, those at, you know, your own church. 
So uh, I, I'm I'm just really uh, you know just delighted to hear that from you because uh, it was so difficult <laughs> to try to to take some of these very very difficult issues and and try to communicate them. But yeah, to to you know to answer your question. Um, for those that are, you know, watching this, uh, EFS, sometimes it's called ERAS, ESS, it goes by different labels, but uh, it's been a very popular position over the last, goodness, uh, at least three decades. And uh, it's a position that uh, has been put forth in decades past as just the biblical view of the Trinity. And uh, at times it's been presented as cons just consistent, not only with the Bible, but just with uh, uh, Nicene Orthodoxy. And uh, well, there's a lot to say about what EFSers teach. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know that I can do it full justice in our conversation. So people should definitely go and read chapter eight. But uh, it, maybe I can take a little, little bit of a, of a, an attempt. Um, you know, in their books and publications, uh, lectures, and uh, all of this is very public. Um, they approach the Trinity in a very formulaic way, um, and this is intentional, uh, in which they will list, you know, the Bible verses that teach God is one, and then they will list verses that then support the deity of each person of the Trinity. Um, and then it, uh, at some point, they will usually make that, uh, that jump, that leap to then say, well, we, we, we have to bring in some type of theological language. So they'll appeal to, you know, homoousios and say that, um, you know, the, the son is equal in essence with the father. And then they'll list, you know, verses where two or three, persons are mentioned together to say, okay, there's this plurality, and then draw that conclusion that God's one essence, three persons. And uh, I always mention this uh, at the start, because I think it's really key here to notice how um, the, the way the Trinity is being approached is, is in a, what I would call a very narrow type of biblicism. Uh, in which you're looking for those chapter and verses that then uh, can support each each of those premises, and then by the end of this formula, you you actually have uh, the conclusions that um, that EFS draws. Now, what are those? Uh, well, um, the the big one that we all know is that um, the way that the persons are defined is according to what the, the vocabulary that EFS uses is very specific. Uh, they will say that the persons are distinguished by roles, by relationships. Um, and then when they define the Trinity, they define the Trinity as a community or a society uh, of these roles and, and relationships, a, a type of relational societal um, community. And um, uh, I, I do want to, we, we should return to that later, but uh, just for the sake of presenting EFS, uh, the next move is then to say, well, what kind, what kind of society uh, is this 
is, is this uh, Trinity, uh, to which they will say, well, there's a, it's a, it's a hierarchical uh, society of functionality. Uh, now here, to be clear, they're not, um, they're not merely talking about the economy of salvation. Uh, they're not merely talking about the incarnation. They're actually talking about the Trinity or what we might call the imminent Trinity. So uh, these roles uh, of hierarchy are person defining. Uh, and for the longest time, there's been some updates recently, but for the longest time, this was it. This, these roles uh, of hierarchy are, are what define the persons as, uh, you know, as, for example, father and son, so much so that they would say, um, you, you cannot have a trinity apart from these. Uh, you can't, the father cannot be father, and the son cannot be son. Now, what kind of hierarchy is this? Well, uh, they've argued that the son is uh, functionally subordinate to the father in the imminent trinity. And, um, and they've argued then for the Holy Spirit as, as uh, um, subordinate still uh, to the father and the son. And uh, sometimes they'll use the word submission instead. But essentially, uh, the language that's used is very strong at times. Um, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, in which they will say things like, uh, the father is uh, supreme in the Trinity. Or they'll say things like, the father has absolute and uncontested supremacy. Um, other times they'll say he has ultimate supremacy, uh, including authority over the Son and Spirit. So uh, these, this person-defining hierarchy is, at, is really quite essential. And at times they'll even bring in the language of glory to say that uh, ultimate glory belongs to the Father. And um, that, of course, stems from that type of uh, functional hierarchy that, that I just mentioned. Now, there's a couple, maybe a couple more things to say about this. Um, one of them is whether or not, given this, uh, this authority and this uh, supremacy that, uh, of, of authority and glory, one of the things that gets brought up is, well, um, can the Father then act unilaterally without the Son or the Spirit? Uh, and in the past, uh, many times they have answered, uh, yes, uh, he, he can. Uh, some have said, there may be a little diversity here. Some have said he, he can do that if he wants to. Um, some have said, well, but he chooses, even though he, he doesn't need the son, he chooses to incorporate the son. Uh, and that's, they'll say that's generous of him to do that. And some have gone further and have argued that uh, at times he actually does. He actually does act uh, without or apart from the Son or the Spirit. Uh, at times they'll even use language like sidelined, <clears throat> sidelined. And, um, but nonetheless, at points he'll choose, he'll choose to include. He'll choose to include the Son or the Spirit. And uh, this has raised the, the question, well, is there then jealous? Could there be jealousy in the Trinity, right? If the Father is supreme in authority and glory, uh, could there be a jealousy from the Son or the Spirit? 
to which they've they've said uh, no, there's there's not because the son knows his place. Uh, the son knows uh, his his uh, his position in the Godhead uh, and recognizes uh, he is to be submissive. Now, there's a you know I want to throw this back to you in a minute here, Liam, uh, but I, I do maybe I should say uh, one or two other things. Um, uh, just to kind of add some clarity here, um, one of the, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but this EFS position has been very public for a long time, right? I mean, I know that this has been kind of a a, a late interest in recent years, but it's been decades. Uh, you go back to you know the '90s, um, and it's it's uh, you you can see it uh, that early. Uh, one of the things that came out uh, in past decades was that <clears throat> many EFS representatives, uh, because they define the Trinity in this way, uh, when they looked at historic Nicene doctrines like eternal generation, which is something just all over the Nicene Creed, right, uh, they rejected it, or they were at the very least suspicious of it. Um, uh, sometimes they did this because they, they didn't see a, a text that specifically said, you know, uh, or spelled out eternal generation. Um, and others have rejected it or were suspicious of it because it didn't logically make sense to them. How can there be a generation with, with, uh, an eternal God, um, also, I should mention, uh, in the past decades, at least, they were also uh, suspicious in some, and this is very common among evangelicals in the last 30 years, I just outright rejected simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, also a significant uh, classical um, aspect of, of our Trinitarian thought. And, uh, of course, this raises all kinds of questions, right, if there is this if you if you are if you're not going to go the route of simplicity, if you're going to you know reject or not really have a place for eternal generation, um, and then you're to bring in instead this societal functional hierarchy within the imminent life of God, uh, all kinds of questions were raised at that point, right? As to well, are there three centers of consciousness? Are there three wills in the Trinity? Um, especially if we're using this language of roles and relationships. Um, now, all, all that said, uh, the last thing I, I, I'll say is, uh, and maybe this is where you could, you know, give us some insight. Um, it, this wasn't just a reflection on the Trinity, <laughs> right? <clears throat> um, whether they realized it or not, uh, it's, it's been very common in the 20th century for there to be a move from uh, the Trinity to society. And so by defining the Trinity as a, a community, a, a society of, of uh, functional hierarchy, uh, of, of authority to submission and subordination, they then made the move over to society, specifically gender discussions. And they this then became a major uh, argument for for them for EFSers to say, well, uh, women then should submit 
to men as Christ, uh, as the Son, naturally submits to the Father. And um, they would say this uh, in terms of um, the home, but also the church and wider society. So um, this was a, a, if we go back and look at the decades, this was a major component and topic. Um, Whenever EFS was presented, this was quickly mentioned as well, uh, this, this transition. But that said, I, I would like to hear from you because there's a there's a part two to this story. <laughs> uh, you know, if we go back to, you know, 2016, a couple of years back, um, you started to pull the rope to the bell and um, started to to say, wait a minute. Uh, hey, I, I'm a complementarian, too, but uh, I'm not sure we should be. Uh, redefine the Trinity that way. I, I would love people to hear from you. What initially alarmed you and caught your attention and 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 motivated you to to say something and be so bold? <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I I to some degree I feel that I should have I should have said something earlier or mm-hmm. I should have recognized what was going on earlier. Um, I began to realize uh, the, over over the years, and I've been around a lot of years, <laughs> and uh, preaching in various places and and in various churches where I was minister, that there were passages of scripture that I would preach on. And if I if I looked in some of the more popular books, other preachers who are well known in their handling of them. I was dissatisfied with the way they handled certain parts in John's Gospel, for example, and uh, and I had been preaching through John's Gospel here in the church I'm in at the moment in Philadelphia, and uh, was increasingly being irritated. If I looked down at the footnotes, sometimes in the footnotes of really well-known commentaries on John's Gospel, were very well known by the big hitters. <laughs> In America, <laughs> I wouldn't go any more specific than that. They would just cite eternal subordination or the eternal subordination of the Son as an explanation in the footnotes as if this was something that was academically, at least in the academic world of evangelicalism, a thing. And 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 without without any without any explanation or without any uh, any uh, uh, any embarrassment really, so uh, I was noticing this more and more. And then somebody sent me through through the mail a, a book a publisher did, and it was a book on on roles within marriage, roles between genders, and so on, and. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll make a confession here. I, I have lived, I had lived at that stage over 40 years, uh, 50 years of being married and so on. Never saw the need really to read books about how to be a man yeah. uh, <laughs> or how to be a husband <laughs> or how to be a father because that kind of came naturally. And I'd avoided that kind of the trashy end, if you like, of the market. <laughs> and yeah. But I read this book and it was by... Well, I won't say who it was by, but it was by a well-known evangelical leader and two evangelical leaders. 
And in this book, they were they were used they were talking about you know the, the relationship between the husband and the wife and children, and they were using the Holy Trinity that the husband's like God the Father and this Christ the Son is like the wife and the Holy Spirit is like the baby in the relationship. And I'm thinking this is absolutely crazy. Yeah. Uh, so I did a bit more digging around, and then uh, some posts came on from Amy Bird uh, on mortification of spin, and I read her post, and and she was re- relating these things, and I'd never seen this before, and I'm thinking, this, this is fundamentally wrong to look for support for your view <laughs> from the Holy Trinity, yeah. because you are you are modifying the Holy Trinity, to support uh, a gender position, which, even though I agree, well, actually, I didn't, because I think they took it far too far, actually. But I I held to what I call a sane and scriptural view of the relationships. And there were things the Bible explicitly says that that men are to do and that women are to do, and that that are just so obvious and clear. You don't need to reinvent God in order to support that Mm. view. So, um, and Amy Bird just said to me, well, if you feel that strongly about it, why don't you write something? (laughs) I I don't write things. But I, I did feel strongly about it, and the more I thought about it, the more I read about it. And yeah. I wrote this great long thing, and she published it, and the rest is history, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I remember some of those uh, initial articles you wrote, and uh, one of the things that popped out at me was um, one of one observation early on that you made, which I, I, I give you a lot of credit for because... Early on, you know, there's a uh, a lot of questions as to what exactly is this view, and I think you recognized early on that uh, well, they seem to be redefining the Trinity at, in social terms, and um, and then by introducing this type of hierarchy, uh, this type of social Trinity then. Well, this seems to collapse. It seems to collapse who God is in and of himself with the economy of salvation. Uh, how, what, what triggered that for you? So some conversations that I had, I, I heard a podcast, I had a conversation with someone, and, um, <clears throat> and in the course of the conversation, I asked him three questions. I said, so do you believe that there are Three wills in God. And he said, yes. He was a professor in a seminary. Uh, he said, yes. But are there three consciousnesses in God? And he said, yes. And then I said, would you go as far as to say that there are three quiddities, three mm. things? Yeah. And he said, yes. Yeah. And he's since repented of that and, and uh, doesn't hold that to that anymore, but that was his position at that time. And that just opened a whole new door to me in understanding what was what was going on. Because if, if you hold to EFS, you really have to believe in those things. You really do have to believe in those three things, that there are those three things in God, three consciousnesses, three wills, 
three qualities. Yeah. When, um, you know, we're, we're talking here about several years ago when all, when, when you first wrote that, um, since then, there's been uh, some updates, if we could call them that, uh, from EFSers. Um, one of them has been uh, they've they've looked at uh, eternal generation and they've said, okay, we will um, we will accept eternal generation. And um, though, and we can talk more about this, but uh, the reason for doing so was because they were they changed their mind about um, a word study uh, for that word begotten in John's gospel. I uh, wasn't necessarily or always because they saw the uh, credibility of eternal generation for all its historic and biblical and theological reasons uh, had more to do with that word study, but nonetheless, they accepted it, uh, which on the one hand, uh, you know, we would want to say, well, praise God that, you know, there's been a recognition uh, to affirm eternal generation. But um, I, I, I worry a little bit that uh, people only looked at the surface because uh, I think it also, as you started to, you know, read them further, they were accepting eternal generation, but in order to double down mm-hmm. on subordination and submission. Uh, in other words, they started to say, well, okay, uh, the son is begotten from the father. And therefore, uh, this submission and functional subordination flows out of eternal generation or is found within, this is the type of language they've used, uh, is found within eternal generation. And so, so now you have a situation where, yes, they've affirmed eternal generation, but uh, the question is raised, well, are they doing so accurately? Are they doing so according to how eternal generation has been understood uh, biblically and theologically and historically, like with the Nicene Creed, for example? And, um, and, then, and then as you sort of look at how they've argued in the years since, uh, it's become pretty apparent that, well, under the surface of that initial affirmation of eternal generation, there's been actually um, some criticism of Nicaea, or what we might call the, the pro-Nicene tradition, in which uh, they've said, well, you know, Nicaea argued that uh, for some, you know, assumed this doctrine of simplicity, and then as it looked at the uh, works of the Trinity and creation salvation, uh, said, well, the, the distinctions of uh, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirited, those then, uh, Nicaea said those are consistent then with uh, appropriations. And, and the, pro, the pro-Nicene tradition followed this, this route in which uh, uh, these appropriations uh, whatever they would be, you know, the Father sending the Son, the Son becoming incarnate, the Holy Spirit coming to Pentecost, on and on. Um, whatever appropriation we're referring to, the pro-Nicene tradition said, well, these are fitting. These are these correspond to 
those eternal relations of origin, which alone distinguishes uh, the persons. But EFSers, and uh, since that controversy, have said no, there are two things that distinguish the persons. Yes, we'll now say eternal relations of origin, but also, also uh, this type of functional hierarchy um, uh, within the imminent Godhead, that too is person-defining. And from there, they've been critical. It, it, it points, they've even um, said that this pro-Nicene understanding of the Trinity and appropriations that fall short. Um, and they've argued at points that, uh, yes, they've even been, I think, transparent enough to say, yeah, our EFS view is different than, and sometimes even contrary to the, that pro-Nicene tradition, uh, or at least some of it in their estimation, but they've kind of fallen back on this claim that, well, we have the Bible. And uh, so that settles it. I guess, you know, in, in light of all of that, um, I mean, you've made this observation early on that, uh, you know, there's social categories being introduced here. Are we... Um, are, are we just crazy? <laughs> are, are we crazy to recognize this? That no, actually, I mean, I, what I hear you saying, Liam, is uh, as much as to EFSers, as much as they may be saying this is just pure Bible, we're just believing the Bible. You're saying no, you're not. Whether you realize or not, you're introducing, you're redefining the Trinity in social categories. Am I? Um, <laughs> Are we crazy in making that point? Because they will deny that. They'll say, no, we're not social Trinitarians. I think they'll deny that. But are we crazy in actually connecting those dots? I think fundamentally, they, they fundamentally are. They have totally accepted the social Trinitarian view. I mean, their, their view of the eternal beings of the sun, uh, Bart held a similar view. He, he argued that eternal generation meant obedience. It, for the sun. So there's that Bartian element, whether they recognize that they're going yeah. down the road or not, I don't know. Or they certainly yeah. would not like to be identified that way, but there's no doubt that there's a connection there, which is a challenge to the unity of God, mm. the essential unity of God. Um, uh, and, and probably even a challenge to uh, the effective saving will of God being present in Christ in his yeah. work of salvation. And so on. Yeah. But, but, but in terms of how the three persons relate within the, the EFS view, it, it, it's like a crazy thing that I read uh, a popular preacher speaking about perichoresis, where it's a kind of dance, this kind of thing. Thing where there's people dancing around in a room. I, I, I just think we have so far lost classic theism yeah. uh, that, that now anything goes, anything goes. Yeah. And we're in danger of falling into, lapsing into some of the old, of the old uh, errors. Um, and you, 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 you demonstrate this, I think, very clearly in chapter eight of your, of your book. For example, tritheism. Do you want to say something about some of these? Yeah. So, 
you know, building on, you know, your observation, I, 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 you know, in writing this book, I went back and I read just about everything that that was released uh, during the whole, you know, controversy over EFS. Um, and I think your observation that, hey, this is this is social Trinitarianism in disguise. Uh, as I went back to read then 20th century literature on the Trinity, it was it was uh, so clear. <laughs> uh, I mean, when you think about some of the marks of a social Trinitarianism over the over the 20th century, um, there, there's the starting point or the emphasis is, is definitely not divine simplicity. Uh, it's, it's going to be instead on three persons, however that's defined. Um, uh, definitely, you know, the, the Trinity is redefined as a society uh, type of social community, uh, even analogous to a human society, right? Yeah. Uh, or if you think about, for example, how uh, like you mentioned, uh, for some social Trinitarians, now some say this explicitly, others, they have to show, you know, whether they're actually, you know, their view leads this way. But either way, there's this strong emphasis on individual centers of consciousness or will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, right, the persons in the 20th century, social Trinitarians redefine the persons as relationships, so here we're not talking about the, the ontological historical pro-Nicene category of relations, um, but rather these relationships or roles, right? That smacks of individuals like we experience, you know, you and I in society, where there may be a you know a cooperation with one another. And then also, when you look at 20th century social Trinitarianism, there's this collapse um, of, of God and himself with, with the economy. Uh, but as we've hinted at, um, on the heels of all this, there's this strong agenda to then make the Trinity our social program. When you think about, I mean, we could go on. There's many other characteristics of social Trinitarianism, but when you think about those marks, those are a match for EFS to one degree or another. Uh, and, and they may not like hearing that, uh, especially when they're saying it's just pure Bible, but um, it's so clear. I mean, when you look at the numerous social Trinitarians over the last century, uh, this type of vocabulary, this whole concept is exactly what they they argued. Now, that said, you know, you've mentioned... Um, uh, tritheism. And uh, one of the things I, I try to point out is that um, EFS, while it may it may not be an exact match for, say, any particular heresy, nonetheless, that's not necessarily a comfort, because in light of the 20th century social movement, it's not a surprise that this is a type of, of novelty. Um, it's something new. So uh, what I've done is I tried to say, well, let's look at the ingredients, you know, to use another metaphor, let's look at the ingredients of EFS. Are there tendencies here to go in the direction of, say, uh, you know, tritheism, uh, Sabellianism, or or especially uh, subordinationism? Uh, 
And I think the ingredients are there, even though they would deny that claim. So, you know, for example, if, if you consider uh, tritheism, I mean, once you start using this language of roles and relationships, or even, uh, you know, some of the professors have gone so far to criticize a doctrine like inseparable operations. Um, and at times they've even said there's exclusive, uh, exclusive uh, motives, right? So that the father can have his exclusive motive, and that can be um, that can be totally set apart from the son or distinct agents. Sometimes this language is used with multiple purposes, uh, or or even uh, distinct agents with. Uh, exclusive purposes. Uh, these are the type of ingredients that historically, at least, have been part of the recipe for for tritheism, especially when you start saying things like there's an authority within the imminent Godhead that is exclusive to the Father and even a glory. It, at, that, at that point, um, You've you've kind of opened the door, and if you start that to then say that uh, you know you start to emphasize that too much, it's hard to see then how you haven't departed from the the simplicity and the unity of the Godhead. I mean, this you, you're a great lover of of the Puritans. I know you know you think of someone like John Owen, John Owen was following uh, those before him was very, very careful to say, when we talk about the three persons, we have to say almost immediately that they perform a single action. They, they are that one. <laughs> um, they are, you know, to use some more fancy theological language, they are um, subsistences of the same divine essence. Or, you know, when we when we distinguish between them as father, son, spirit, we're very careful to say, well, yes, but this one essence uh, subsists in father, son, spirit, or has three modes of subsistence. And then from there, we, we spell out paternity, affiliation, spiration. Um, I think what, you know, someone like John Owen is trying to do is he's trying very hard to, make sure he doesn't forfeit the one essence and the one will of the Godhead. Uh, because if you forfeit the Trinity's one simple undivided essence, um, he's, he's no longer simply Trinity anymore. Uh, so, you know, I could go on, but, you know, when, when you start to, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that if you start to introduce an authority submission structure into the imminent training that is person defining at that point, it requires a diverse volitional capacity to, to you know, to, to put it that way, there has to be, uh, a, there has to be diversity of volitional faculties that goes to what you were saying. They may deny multiple wills, but, Everyone else is standing there saying, how is that, how, how can you actually consistently say that, uh, given everything else you've said about hierarchy and roles and relationships? Um, 
Now that's, that's just, do you have thoughts on that? So, I mean, I think, I think the, the one thing we've distressed, and this is a novel virus that's been insinuated into the life of the church, like COVID. Excuse me, this little creature. Oh, he's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so it's been, it's been insinuated into the body of evangelicalism in particular. That's where it's shown itself. And increasingly, I think the people who are holding to it are now critiquing uh, the whole Nicene legacy. They are, they are now coming out more openly critical. Yeah of Nicaea, of the scholastics, of the reformed orthodox, uh, trying to just trying to separate Calvin from the reformed orthodox, but you can't do it. Uh, but they're cr- critiquing them. And, and some, especially in the high, the high reformed circles, are saying explicitly and clearly and openly that we want to forget everything that's happened and start with a clean sheet of paper and talk about God and forget all about how the church has seen it in the past. Um, and it is a social model that they're following. Mm. Invariably, it's a social model. Yeah. I mean, when you, we've been talking about how a social model, I don't think it's accidental, right? With a social model, they're constantly feeling this burden to answer the charge of tritheism. But I mean, I, I I think you're probably onto something when I, and I think you've hinted at this before that it's not just that, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, when you look at EFS, is there also some ingredients that make you worried about Sabellianism? What do you think? <clears throat> Sabellianism is harder to <clears throat> tie down, as you know. But I, do, I, do, I think you make a good case for it in, in your book, um, that there are definite elements of Sabellianism emerging. Yeah. And, 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 I th- and I think probably primarily to me, the threat to divine simplicity mm. um, in in distinguishing the ontology from the function and so on, as if as if there is no connection between the two, as if who yeah. God is is you know is what God does. I mean, God, what God does, He does as the one who is, and yeah. um, and and the, I mean, they they want biblical basis for for things, but the Bible basis is already there. If you Go to Isaiah 6. Uh, who does Isaiah see? He sees the Lord God of Israel. He sees the, the thrice holy God there in all, all his majesty and his glory. But if you go to John 12 and you ask John 12, who did Isaiah see? He says he saw Jesus. And yeah. his glory. So which is it? Is it the glory of God or is it the glory of Jesus? <laughs> the glory of Jesus is the glory of God. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, you go to John seventeen. You hear the same thing. Uh, you know, when it comes to the, when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit in, or the work of God in, the the, uh, in the incarnation, just go to that little incident with Elizabeth and and Mary and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, "My the mother of my Lord has come to me," because she believed everything 
that the Lord had said to her. So you have the Lord who spoke to her through the angel Gabriel. You've got the Lord who's in her womb, and and you've got this woman filled filled with the Holy Spirit. God is acting, and it's same with the incarnation. The word of the Lord comes to 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 Joseph. The Holy Spirit's at work in Mary's womb, and the one who's going to be born is God with us. I mean, it's that happens all over the place. Who comes to live in your heart? Well, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you and he will be in you. And when he comes to you, I will come to you and my Father will come to you. Well, who is it that's indwelling us? Well, it's God who's indwelling us. What was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You lose that simplicity and those inseparable operations. Yeah. That God always acts as one, the unity of God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so well said. Um, I mean, the, the way that Scripture speaks of those inseparable operations, it, it guards us then uh, in, in uh, crucial ways from, from some of these mistakes. Um, how you just described the Trinity, right, is so different from EFS, where um they, there's such an emphasis on this functional societal hierarchy uh, that you, you start to feel like, well, if you push this, these, these societal hierarchical activities, if you push that, it's very difficult then to see how uh, God doesn't just, um, at that point, especially when you say the father may not even need the son, it's very hard to, to avoid a civilian type of tendency, right? In which um, the father can act unilaterally. Is the son waiting? Is, is he waiting for his turn? That's very different than what you have described just now in which you know, they, are, they are one in essence. Uh, we're not describing here a... Uh, you know, three activities or functionalities. And maybe this is where things start to come undone is when they start to make that distinction in the imminent life of God between ontological and functional, which is which is totally novel and starts to, when you start to introduce that type of distinction of function, that starts to, the ingredients for Sibelianism just start, start to show themselves at that point. Yeah, I, where where uh, Philip asks Jesus, show us the Father. Yeah, Jesus says, "Have I been so long among you? Yeah, uh, you don't know me. Yeah. <laughs> What's it? You don't know me. Show me the Father. You don't know me. I and the Father are one. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, and and I think when Isaiah calls him the everlasting Father, I mean, it, it's. Yeah. People explain all these things away. No, this, this unity of being, simplicity of being, and indivisibility, indivisibility of their work, of work as God, as God in 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 the world and in our lives. Um, yeah. When um, you know, we, we we haven't yet talked about. Uh, the big one, right? <laughs> the, which is subordinationism. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, you know, it, in, in my book, in, in chapter eight, uh, you know, I tried to be fair uh, to say, okay, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that EFS is, uh, you know, they're not claiming that they are, you know, these heresies. Uh, but then I'm raising the question of, well, do they come dangerously close? And are the ingredients there uh, to support that, that claim? And with this, this last one of subordinationism, um, this, tends to be, this tends to be the big one, right? Um, because on the one hand, I think folks have recognized, okay, this isn't... Uh, this isn't, you know, historic Arianism. There's differences, uh, of course, um, but is it a type of subordinationism? If we can put the ism on the end there, um, that that we should be concerned about. Um, I mean, I'd love to to hear, you know, some of your thoughts on this. I mean, I, you know, just to to kind of get us started. I think one of the the big problems here. Right. And there's probably several we could mention. But one of the big ones is this um, this distinction, if we can just tackle it, saying there's something ontological. The son's one in essence of the father, but there's something functional. The son is subordinate or submits uh, to the authority of the father. We're not talking here about the economy of salvation when they say that sort of thing. Uh, it's not only novel, but it actually, it seems to actually misunderstand what the connection between essence and person is to begin with. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, when, I mean, you've been emphasizing divine simplicity, right? And well, uh, basic to that belief is, well, everything in God is God. Uh, when everything everything's ontological when we're talking about the infinite, incomprehensible deity himself. Um, so to, to start uh, speaking this way is, is very peculiar. You know, if we were to ask, well, what distinguishes plurality in the simple God? It's not something functional, but it's something personal. And by personal, I, what I mean is hypostasis, right? Um to, to be exact. Uh, so this is why I think in the past, as uh, Bible interpreters have looked at scripture, they've said there's one, really one thing alone that distinguishes the persons. And it's, it's those uh, modes of subsistence or eternal relations of origin. Uh, the father is unbegotten. The, the son is, is begotten. The spirit is spirated. And if, if that's the case, if that alone distinguishes the persons of the Godhead, well, then the connection that in our own minds between essence and person is very different than, than what EFS claims. Um, you know, when we talk about the son being equal to the father, right? Homoousios with the father. Uh, EFSers will, will say that, but they never, they never actually ask why. Why is that the case? Why is it the case that we can say that? And I think where, what, what needs to be said is the reason we can affirm that equality is because the Son is begotten from the essence of the Father. 
Now, if that's the case, then we can't make this artificial divide between, oh, here's something ontological. Let's let's talk about the essence. Okay, here's something functional. Let's talk about the persons. No, the 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 son is begotten from the father's essence. He these these persons are subsistences of the essence itself. So all that to say, uh, when we refer to like homoousios, this isn't just like something we just check off on the orthodoxy card, right? I mean, this is this says something. Um, and it, it ensures that there is no any type of hierarchy, lest the sun not actually be a subsistence of the essence itself. I guess the million-dollar question, the million-dollar question, right, is if, if you go that route of functional hierarchy, if those persons are subsistences of the essence, well, how then, how then, even though they'll claim this isn't the case, how then is subordination kept from the essence? It seems that the essence would be littered with it if the son, for example, is begotten from the father's essence. <laughs> yeah. uh, what are your thoughts on, on this, uh, what I'm calling this artificial yeah. vibe? So I, I think in, in defending ourselves against their charges, they will always... They will always accuse us of using metaphysical terms and language, mm. and and so I, I I like to kind of be back on them with the Bible. That's what they like to talk about. Yeah. The Bible. So let's look at what the, the Bible spends most of its time, i.e., the Old Testament part of it, demonstrating to us that God is one, mm. and teaching us that God is He who is. I am, and that he has in and of himself all, all of divinity, all, all, all of what it is to be God, and this God all the way through, and that there is no other God beside him. His glory he does not give to another, and so on. So when we come at that from the New Testament, what, what the New Testament teaches us to understand is that the Son it's a, it introduces us father son language and it uses it in terms of relations of origin mm. it's 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 kind of reflected it's mirrored in the fact that jesus in his humanity gets all his humanity from his mother yeah and that points us back to the tr to the trinity because it's meant to mirror it at a human level right he's going to do divine things in a human way mm. Uh, that that eternally he has all of his deity from the Father. He, the Father gives to him all of his deity. He shares all of his Father's deity the way Mary shares all of her humanity with the baby in her womb. So the Father from all eternity shares his deity with the Son. And Jesus spells this out for us in, in John when he says, the Father is life in himself and he's given to me to have life in myself. Yeah, John 5. God, if, if God has life in himself, Jesus Christ says, I have life in myself. Yeah. He has everything of God. The whole fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him in mm. God's form. I mean, the, so I, I, I don't need to hide behind metaphysical language, which is yeah. the charge they give you. I go straight to the Bible and I read the Bible the way it's meant to be read. Right. Right. <laughs> and in the New Testament, what, what Jesus flags up by using creaturely terms creaturely terms, father, son. I mean, we don't think for a moment that God is a father the way we are fathers or, or he, Jesus, a son as we are. Yeah. 
he, he is breaking this down into creaturely language for us to understand. Yeah. That, but that from all eternity, the Father gave all that he is, except that he's the Father. He's the, he is the unoriginate, uh, the unbegotten to the Son and to the Holy Spirit by spirating. And, uh, and that what we can say about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God. The Spirit, we can say about the Son, that he is God the Son. Therefore, if he's God, then he's all that God is. <laughs> so when it comes to power, Jesus is the power and wisdom of God. Uh, so so they, they just don't read the Bible closely enough. For mm. all the talk about the Bible, yeah. they don't read the Bible. They don't read the Bible closely enough. And that one of the things you have to say about the fathers of the church is they read the Bible minutely and they believe yeah. it will completely. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Not only in its words, but in its patterns of thought. Yeah. You know, I, I think, for example, of the, uh, the Athanasian Creed, you know, since you're talking about how they read the Bible, it's amazing to me that they can say what you said. And they say it in so few sentences, uh, but they they make sure they preserve that type of simplicity you are trying to highlight. Um, you know, I, I've got here in front of me the uh, the Athanasian Creed, um, and it at one point it says, and here it you just mentioned authority and power, right? It, it has this to say. It says. Uh, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. <laughs> that is that is the type of nuance um, and careful protection uh, of of divine simplicity in the God and the in the Godhead that uh, I don't think EFS can do justice to and I don't I think it actually compromises in the end um, I mean I you're a you're a pastor and uh, you're you know pastoring your flock um, it are there are there practical, I mean, we've been talking about, you know, some, some technical things here, but are there real practical implications if you go the EFS route and read your Bible that way for pastoring, even for doxology? Um, have you seen that happen mm. in, at the pastoral level with, with the sheep? Yeah. So, so the uh, I think of one body, um, a group of uh, evangelical Anglican ministers. I won't identify where they are in the world, uh, but uh, they they have bought into the EFS thing uh, in a big way. And interestingly, in doing so, they have redefined what worship is. So, worship is no longer. No longer God-centered uh, worship is all of life. Worship is, uh, and then that has an effect on preaching. What is preaching, and does it glory in God, or does it give you kind of practical things that you have to do for 
all of life. So everything is becoming, the more social the Trinity becomes, the more, the more legal, the more uh, uh, rules orientated life becomes, uh, Christian living becomes more my living with other people than it is living with God, contemplating God, worshiping God, focusing on God. So there's a, there's a practical implication there that in some parts of the world that I know well uh, is ravaging the churches. Yeah. You know, so that, that's one, that's one thing. And of course it's being utilized for the gender question as well. And is overstating things that are, there are some true things, but it's so overstating things as to become actually a burden placed on people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the more you get away from a vision of who God is, as the church has acknowledged and seen him over the centuries, the more disconnected we come from learning about God with all the saints, as the apostle said we should, then the more arid and dry Christianity becomes, and the less of grandeur and glory in our worship of him. Um, so it is. It has massive implications. Yeah, I love how you just put that, Liam, because you're um, you are preaching the scriptures week in, week out. You're then taking those scriptures and uh, you are going to your people with them during the week, uh, and yet you're simultaneously trying to practice that hermeneutical humility, right? To say, uh, I'm not, we shouldn't go this novel direction of EFS. It has major theological consequences and also pastoral consequences. And yet I'm just as committed to the Bible. <laughs> I'm, I too believe um, uh, in the scriptures and their authority. Um, but when it comes to EFS, this is um, this is something that's being read into the scriptures, not something that's being read from the scriptures. Um, maybe uh, we could we could wrap up our conversation. I, I would just you know love to, to, to kind of give you kind of the closing word here to to just um, you know as you go. Other pastors who might be listening to this, right? They're going to go back into their congregations. Um, do they need to become very narrow biblicists in order to to teach the Trinity, or can they actually go into their congregations, standing on the shoulders of others um, that have come before them, and give their people the scriptures in a way that? faithfully articulates the total equality uh, of, of the persons. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think one of the first books I read when I went to seminary was Augustine on the Trinity uh, and Athanasius on the Incarnation and the way in which those men handled Scripture and the amounts of scripture that were were yeah. in those books. I mean, really, I mean, Augustine is just full of it. He, he, but he shows you how to read it, and yeah. how to read it in a way that it uh, that it, it the Bible is essentially not about 
me and my life and my behavior. It's about God and the implications for me and my life and my behavior flow out of that, but it's primarily about God. And we, it, there needs to be a recovery of God in the life of the minister, in his devotional life. I, I think a minister should be way ahead of his congregation in stretching themselves, reading the tough stuff, mm. uh, and and reading stuff written before nineteen hundred. Yeah. That's a good start. <laughs> maybe, maybe even earlier. But you do. You need to do that. You need because, and I mean going right back. The church didn't start at the Reformation. Yeah. I'm reformed. It started right at the big beginning with with the apostles and then with the early church and so on. And the medievals, they believed the Bible too. And I mean Thomas Aquinas. If you had asked Thomas Aquinas what was most important, the greatest thing he'd ever done in his life, it wouldn't have been his Summa Theologica. It would have been the commentaries that he wrote on the biblical yeah. text. Yeah. Um, and we, we, there are inheritance. As Reformed people, there are inheritance as much as anything else. Um, so I would say hermeneutical retrieval. Get, get back to using the Bible the way the Bible's meant to be used. All of it. And that the texts of Scripture aren't just what modern scientific approaches in commentaries tell you. If you if you get all the modern commentaries and you have, and I've got tons of them, and you read them all, they're just telling you the same thing. And they never get below the surface. They never get below the surface, or very seldom, to think theologically about God. So, so hermeneutical retrieval, theological retrieval, and... Uh, and I think that the upshot of that will be a richer, richer sermons, mm. sermons that actually feed your people, <clears throat> sermons that elevate their minds, <clears throat> sermons that <clears throat> that uh, inspire their spirit as they as they worship and praise God, and and hopefully out of that begin to live in a way that is godly, because God, God as he really is, God the invisible, infinite, ineffable, everywhere present, God in his fullness, who you cannot escape. I mean, at any moment in your life, you cannot escape this God or be out of his gaze or not have his attention. Now, it, it, that's classic theism. Yeah. And it's biblical theism. Yeah. And it's the only theism that will save you. And this is so important because th these people need to know, these people who are teaching this stuff, this error, need to know people's eternal salvation depends on what they think about God. And if you start playing around with that, you are, well, it would be better for you to be thrown into a pool with a, something around your neck than... You'd be cast into hell for that. So I, I just think it's it's just, the stakes are very high on us for us who are preachers and teachers. And uh, the uh, the way that I've I've liked to try to capture basically what what you just said is to say yes, we're talking here about um, classical theism, but we're talking about an orthodoxy that is biblical orthodoxy. Um, and I think there's enormous 
uh, as you were saying, enormous theological pastoral consequences for whether or not we get God right. That is, that's what's at stake. Uh, that's the, the real issue is we're not talking, this isn't just any other doctrine. Uh, this isn't um, something that we can afford to, to go wrong on. This is actually God. This is the doctrine of God. So the stakes are high. Liam, I, uh, this has been so good. Uh, I feel like I feel like I've been, uh, you know, one of your sheep listening, you know, sitting under your your care. I wish I could be there uh, over at 10th Presbyterian and and uh, benefit directly that way. But um, really appreciate uh, what you're doing. I mean, to to those who are watching this, I would just say. You know, yeah, we've been talking about, you know, simply Trinity, but I would just say, go take the opportunity to listen to Liam's preaching. Um, not only is it theologically robust and faithful, but uh, you, you'll walk away with your soul just really, really edified. So uh, take, it, take, it advantage, take advantage of that. Um, Liam, it's been, it's been a very good, very good to, to be with you. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.